Welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. You're about to hear a message that we hope will inspire, encourage, and challenge you to grow closer to God. So sit back, prepare your heart, and see where God can take you.
Well, thank you guys for worshiping with us. You may be seated. everyone and welcome to Crossroads Church. If you believe we serve a risen Savior, come on, give him one more great big hand of praise. Great to see you today. So glad you can worship with us today. Great to have you here. We all make statements, right, all the time. All of us make different types of statements. We make fashion statements. My fashion statement today is I don't wear suits. Not even on Easter Sunday, I don't wear suits, don't like them. We make fashion statements. You know, if you're a part of a corporation, typically your corporation will have some type of mission statement. Uh, regularly, we're called upon to, uh, you know, provide financial statements. Um, in religious circles, uh, we have statements of faith. We all make Statements. I heard about a, a pastor that was preaching one Sunday morning against the evils of alcohol. And man, he was preaching it hot and heavy. And as he got into his message, he said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd go down and I'd pour it in the river. And he kept preaching hot and heavy. And he said, I'll tell you one thing. If I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd go pour it in the river. He kept preaching even hotter, even heavier. And finally he said, if I had all the wine... From all around the world, I'd just go pour it in the river. He wrapped up his message and got ready to end the service. He called the choir director and the choir uh, up, and he said, what hymn are you going to lead us in as we, uh, as we end the service today? And the choir director said, we've chosen, shall we gather at the river? <laughs> I, I think he was making his own statement. I don't know. But we all make uh, statements, don't we? We all make statements. I don't know if you've ever really considered the seven statements that Jesus made from the cross, but they're incredible. The very fact that he made any statement at all is nothing short of remarkable. After all, the crucifixion that he suffered was an extremely cruel way to die. In crucifixion, as you hang on the cross, when you reach a point where you can no longer support your weight, eventually your blood fills up your lungs, and you ultimately suffocate. So in order to have the breath capacity to make these statements, I want you to think about what Jesus had to endure. He would have had to pull against the pain of the nails driven through his wrist. He would have had to push against the pain of the nail driven 
through both of his feet. Uh, his back that had been lacerated by the scourging, the whipping, would have raked along that rough beam of wood that he was nailed to just so that he could get enough breath in his lungs to make these statements. And so if he was willing to go through all of that to say something to us, I think we would do well to lean in and listen. Amen? And I, I want to discuss those seven statements with you today. Before I do, let me just say this. The cross itself has to be the greatest statement ever made in human history. What a statement God made. By putting Jesus on that cross, it was a statement about God's love for all humanity. Jesus had said in John 15, verse 13, no greater love has anyone than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And he didn't only lay down his life for his friends, he laid down his life for us all. Can somebody say thank God today? What a statement. What a statement God made there at the cross. The cross was God saying, this is what you're worth to me. The cross was God saying, I love you too much to leave you in your sin. Hanging there on that cross in excruciating pain, this God that loved the world so much mustered enough strength to share seven statements with us. Here's the first one. I believe we all inherently understand that the cross of Christ was about forgiveness. But when we consider the cruelty with which they punished him that day, beating him, torturing him, mocking him, one has to wonder, how could he do it? How could he pardon them? Yet the very first statement uttered by Jesus from the cross that day revealed the sentiment he felt, not only to those who brutalized him, but for all of us whose sin he carried to that cross. Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His first statement from the cross was a statement about forgiveness, a request that the Father would forgive us. And the reason he makes this statement is because we all need forgiveness. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. So one thing we all have in common, the book of Romans makes it absolutely clear in chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, 23, the scripture says that the wages or the price of our sin is death. And by the way, in the Bible, death isn't just your lungs no longer breathing, your heart no longer beating. Death in the Bible is eternal separation from God. And the scripture said the price of our sin is that kind of death, but it goes on to say the gift of God is eternal life. In Romans 5 verse 8, the scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10, the Bible lets us know that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, 
And if we confess with our mouth that he's Lord to the glory of God, we will be saved. That first statement Jesus makes about forgiveness is simply because we all need to be forgiven. When I was a teenager, I rebelled against everything my Christian parents had taught me to believe and to live out. I rebelled hard against it all, and I was soon caught up in so much uh, dysfunction and addiction, and my sin was pushing everybody that loved me away. After I gave my heart to Christ and became a follower of Jesus in my early 20s, I regretted so much all the decisions I'd made and the things that I'd done, especially the way that I had treated my parents. I'd lied to them, I'd stolen from them, I'd talked ugly to them and, and about them, and I regretted it so much that I, I, I went to them after becoming a follower of Jesus, I, I went to them and I begged them to forgive me, and they assured me, Jeff, all is forgiven. But I found myself just a few months later going back to them again, I'm so sorry for the way I treated you. And again, they assured me, you're forgiven. If I can be candid with you, I did that pretty regularly throughout the rest of their life here on earth. I don't know what it was, but the regret I felt brought me again and again and again to my parents, asking them, please forgive me. In fact, both of my parents are in heaven today, and on their deathbed, both of them, some of the last words I spoke to them was how sorry I was for how I treated them. You know, since becoming a follower of Jesus, I've never really had any problem forgiving people that did me wrong. I guess when you've been forgiven of much, you forgive much. And isn't that what the Bible is addressing? In Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, when he tells us, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. When Jesus utters his first statement, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He wasn't asking the Father to do something he wasn't willing to pay for. In fact, in that very moment, he was paying the price for our forgiveness. All over Jerusalem that day, people were preparing lambs for a Passover sacrifice. What they would have to do in those days is offer a lamb without blemish on an altar for the atonement for their sins. And even as they were preparing those sacrificial lambs that day, God had placed another lamb on an altar. John the Baptist referred to him in John chapter one, verse 23, as the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And God had placed that lamb on the altar of the cross to die for all of our sins. We don't have to offer those sacrificial lambs on an altar anymore. No, we don't have to sacrifice on an altar, but we do have to come to an altar. That altar doesn't have to be in a building like this. It doesn't have to be in a service like this, but we have to come to an altar nonetheless. Our altar is that place where we recognize our sin and we recognize our Savior and we call on Him to save us, forgive us, pardon us. 
the altar that I knelt at over 40 years ago was a couch in my dad's home. 1.30 in the morning, February 14th. I knelt there alongside my dad and I cried out to God and he saved me. He forgave me. God made me right with himself as I made Jesus Lord of my life. And if we had any real desire for this weekend, it would simply be to invite you, come to the altar. Would you stand with me all over the building? Everybody stand here and, and, and let's enter into a moment of worship to the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world.
thankful for Jesus. Come on, church, be thankful for Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. The writer of Hebrews points out that our great high priest Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Because he became a man and dwelt among us, he understands our weaknesses, our disappointments, our vulnerabilities. It's all familiar to him. His second statement from the cross made this truth unmistakably clear. Everything it means to be human, all our wants, our wishes, our yearnings and needs were reflected in that desperate plea. I thirst. Jesus' second statement from the cross is one of familiarity. When he cried out, I thirst, he was letting us know, I understand your suffering. Medical science says you can literally go for weeks without eating, but only hours without drinking, at the most just a few days. Other than oxygen, it's our most basic need for survival. And Jesus wanted us to understand that he understands. He wanted us to know that he feels our pain. Hebrews 4.15 said, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not Sin. I want you to think about that. Jesus experienced the things that so often makes life seem so unbearable. He knew what it was like to see someone that he loved die. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood and to be falsely accused. And, and all of us have experienced things like that. And Jesus understands. I want you to consider just a few verses from the sacred scriptures. John chapter 11, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Have you ever been so heartbroken that all you could do is cry? Jesus has been there. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus looks around and says, you faithless and corrupt people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Have you ever felt like that? Don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. Yeah, he understands. Matthew 26 verse 39 describes how there in the garden Jesus went forward a little, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. 
Nevertheless, not what I desire, but what you desire. Jesus knew what it was like not to want to have to go through something. And so he empathizes with us. He does more than that. He provides a way for us to bear up under whatever life might throw at us. What was it that got through those got Jesus through those agonizing moments on the cross and before? It was God's peace. It was the peace of God that upheld Jesus even under the weight of the sins of the entire world. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second because any of us who have ever had any kind of sin in our life knows just how weighty that can be. There is a weightiness to sin. It will weigh you down. If there's something in your life that no one knows about and you don't want anybody to find out about, you live like that for a few days and it gets heavy, doesn't it? Now, you multiply that billions of times over and that's the weight of the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, sitting on the shoulders of Jesus, and yet God's peace got him through that moment. And then Jesus promises this in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. Jesus said, listen, the very peace that sustained me Underneath the weight of the sins of the whole world, I have given you, and it will hold you up by God's grace through whatever you face in this life. Can somebody say thank God for that perfect peace that passes all understanding today? One of the things that Jesus could relate to is how we love our families and how we're concerned about our families. Check out statement number three. Any of us who have suffered will know the effect that pain and distress has on an individual. It's been said, hurt people, hurt people, but not the Messiah. In the midst of his agony, he wasn't thinking of himself. His mind turned to family. Who would take care of his mother? Who would ensure she would be looked after and provided for? Through excruciating pain, he looked to his beloved disciple John and uttered his third statement from the cross that forever set the bar for how we care for our own families. Mother, this is your son. John. This is your mother. This third statement is amazing to me. As he hangs there suffering, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his family. I believe the reason why Jesus made a statement like this at the cross is because he understood that family is the bedrock of any society. Here's the reality, and I know you see this, as our fallen world has become more and more and more dismissive 
of the family and the importance of the family, we see society unraveling all around us. So Jesus makes a statement from the cross that says, don't forget family. He puts an emphasis on how we're to care for our families at the cross and beyond. He he makes an emphasis on family as he inspires the apostle Paul to write in Ephesians chapter five, verse 22 and verse 25, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In 1 Timothy chapter five and verse eight, Paul writes, if someone doesn't provide for his own, especially his own family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again and again and again, God emphasizes how important family should be to us. In 1979, I met the most beautiful, wonderful, kind, sweet girl I had ever met in my life, and she was crazy about me. (laughs) And I convinced her to marry me in 1981. We weren't saved. We weren't serving Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, my life was controlled by addiction, and it didn't take long for all of that addiction and all that dysfunction to push her away. So thankful and grateful that by the grace of God, we came back together to try to make it work. And it was right after that that Jesus brought Donna and I to a point of decision. And at my dad's house on February the 14th, 1982, we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And now, this past August, we've been married for 40 years. For 40 years. For 40 years, we've prioritized family because what we learned in that moment is this resurrected Jesus not only can bring you individually into newness of life, he can bring your marriage into newness of life and he can cause it to live again. Come on, somebody. Thank God for the power of his resurrection today. So I want to ask you again to stand, please, all over the house. I want you to stand. And what we would love to do today is we would love to just pronounce a blessing on you and your family. If you're here today and you're married, your spouse is with you. If you have your children with you, why don't you pull them up close as as we just sing the words over you that God gave to Moses to speak over the children of Israel so long ago. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And cause his face to shine upon you.
Will his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children. May his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and the children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and the children and the children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and the children and the children may his today in this place thank you God for the gift of Jesus thank you Lord that you made a way for us to come close to your heart father God nothing can stop us from being close to you because of the gift of Jesus thank you Lord that we are never too far off we are never too far gone to enter this place and recognize the name of Jesus I want to take a minute right now to pray a special blessing over every family in this place. Father God, I lift up all the families represented here. Lord, that you would have your hand upon them. Lord, your hand guides them wherever they go. Father God, we believe that as we have gathered ourselves together and we're not forsaking that, that your word will return void, will not return void. Your word will return faithful to us, God, because we are faithful to you. As we are faithful to lift up the name of Jesus, he's going to remain faithful to you, church, because of the name of Jesus. Oh, because of the name of Jesus, there is peace and love in this place. Let there be peace and love in every family here, God. Father God, I see a special blessing coming our way. 
and not only to those here, but to every family connected to the families in this place. Father God, you are so powerful. The blood of Jesus is so mighty. The power raised Jesus from the dead is so mighty that it is strong enough to transcend every obstacle in our way, God. So Lord, we believe that you will be faithful to us today. We believe that you created for us a future and a hope. We receive it, Lord, now in the name of Jesus. Amen. None of the torture, the shame, or the evil that Jesus faced that day compared to the most agonizing aspect of the cross. In the mystery of the Trinity, we see the Son's complete oneness with the Father throughout their eternal existence, that is, until the cross. Then, with the sin of the whole world upon him, the Father had to turn his back upon the Son. The rejection that all of us should have suffered was dealt upon the Messiah in crushing abandonment. As the light of holiness left him in the darkness of our sin, he cried out the words that would have otherwise been our own. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? So statement four isn't really a statement at all, is it? It's a question. But I promise you that question makes a powerful statement. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He revealed a truth that I hope you can wrap your heart around today, and that is this. Life is filled with questions. All of us, we live with questions, right? Right? I have a little grandson, three years old. He's just now entering into the why stage of life. And man, every other thing that little guy says is, why? Why, Poppy? Why? We live life that way. Why did this happen, God? God, why didn't this happen? We live with whys. But listen to me today. The one why you will never have to ask is the why Jesus asked. Why have you forsaken me? You see, God turned his back on Jesus so he would never have to turn his back on us. That's why the psalmist cries out in Psalm 37 and verse 25 and said, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. In Psalm 139, verse 7 through verse 10, he writes, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. God will never forsake us. 
My dad used to love to tell the story of an old man and woman who were at a drive-in diner. They were waiting on their food to be delivered to their car, and uh, the old lady looks over into the car next to them, and there's this young couple sitting there. And the young girl is as close up against her boyfriend as she could possibly be as he sat there behind the wheel. She even had her head on his shoulder. And the old lady says to her husband, she says, you remember when we were young and in love and I used to sit right next to you like that as we drove up and down the streets of town? The old man looked at her, looked at the steering wheel in front of him, and he goes, you know, sweetheart, I haven't moved. (laughs) Can I just tell you, on Easter Sunday, if you're feeling far from God, he's not the one who moved. And he longs to draw you up close and pour himself in you today. Let's check out statement number five. In the mind of the Pharisees, being crucified alongside two thieves had to be an even greater form of humiliation to Jesus. But then, Christ had always been comfortable around the most undesirable. The same compassion he had shown to prostitutes and tax collectors showed up in an exchange between him and one of those thieves. Faith had come alive in the heart of this criminal as he recognized the truth about the Messiah that the religious elite simply could not see. The thief's request to be remembered by Jesus when he entered his kingdom brought a response that should bring joy and hope to all of us who have placed our faith in Christ. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love statement five because statement five speaks to our future. When he told that thief, this day you will be with me in paradise, he reveals the wonderful, wonderful good news that we have heaven to look forward to. This statement actually reveals what Resurrection Sunday is all about. Listen to me. Jesus came out of his grave so all of us can come out of ours one day. Death has no hold on the follower of Jesus. And there will be a a resurrection day. We will come out of that grave and we have heaven to look forward to. In John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Jesus promises, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this weren't so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. We have heaven to look forward to today. Can somebody say thank God? Come on, that's what Resurrection Sunday is about. I don't think this means as much to us as it should. I think in the day that we're living in, with all of the modern conveniences and the affluence 
that so many enjoy, we just can't really grasp what a special promise Jesus has given to us in this statement that heaven is waiting. But I hope, I hope that it wasn't lost on you that these past few years during the pandemic, I think perhaps have brought us back a little closer to how we should feel about heaven. So many of us lost so many that we love. Many lost jobs, lost their homes. There was so much hurt, so much difficulty. I'm so grateful and thankful that it's not always gonna be like this. There will be a day the dead in Christ shall rise. Stand with us. We're gonna sing about heaven today. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity and there will be a day when all bow before him there will be a day when death will be no more standing face to
declare say you're holy God you're holy God We know that the just shall live by faith, but we rarely think about the faith required of Jesus as he lived as a man here among us. To be tempted in all manner as we are, he had to face doubts and succeed in replacing those doubts with faith, just like we do. On the cross, with the weight of the whole world upon him, Jesus made a statement that illustrated his faith in the Father's plan. It was a statement we ourselves must be prepared to make as we face our doubts, our difficulties, and our destiny. Father, into your hands I command my spirit. Statement six is a statement of faith. Jesus says to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I wonder if you've made a similar statement. I wonder if you've committed your heart into God's hands. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse six said, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's what faith believes. Now today, I wanna remind you that faith is a decision. A lot like love, faith is really a decision. In our fallen culture, there's so much emphasis placed on feelings. We have love songs and love stories at the movies that, that put all the emphasis on feelings. And I'm not downplaying feelings. Feelings are fine. You just can't live by how you feel. Faith requires a decision. In these 40 years that Donna and I have served the Lord, I can tell you, we don't just wake up every day feeling like doing things right. We don't always feel like doing things God's way. But you do it not because you feel like it. You do it because he's worthy, and you, you do it because it's the right thing to do. The just shall live by faith. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 that we're not to look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. Somebody say, thank God. The things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. We must place our faith in that God. I'm reminded of a story of a family years and years and years ago, a large family that woke up in the middle of the night and their house was on fire. The mom and the dad quickly went through the house, collecting all of their children, getting them safely downstairs and out into the yard. But when they got there, they realized one of the children was missing. The dad was just about to run back in the house, even though the flames were leaping out those downstairs windows. 
when the mom caught sight of the little boy in an upstairs window. And they begin to shout to him to climb out onto the rooftop. And he climbed down to the edge of the roof and his dad began to encourage him, hey, jump, I'll catch you. Jump to me, son, I'll catch you. But the smoke was billowing. And even though the dad could see the little boy, the little boy could not see his dad. And so when his dad said, jump to me, son, I'll catch you, the little boy said, daddy, I can't see you. And that's when the dad said, son, I can see you. And that's all that matters. Right now, whatever's going on in your life, may have you in a moment when you can't see God like you should. But I assure you today, he can see you. And if you'll jump into his arms, he'll save you. He'll rescue you. We have one more statement we want you to consider from the cross. So often we are tempted to think of salvation on terms of the cross and as if the cross were not enough. We reason, surely redemption hinges on the cross and our good works, the cross and our sincere efforts, the cross and every other lofty idea our insecurity can drum up for us. But the final statement Jesus made from the cross lays all these religious notions aside. He made a declaration that left zero room for additions and supplementations. He gave himself as a ransom for all mankind, shedding his precious blood as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, placing an exclamation point at the end of it all with his final words. It's finished. Statement seven is so powerful. Will you say it with me? It is finished. It's done. It's complete. It's a complete work. Jesus makes this statement to let us know there's not one thing you and I can add to our salvation. Everything needed to accomplish salvation, redemption, newness of life, he took care of at the cross. All we need now to do is simply place our faith in that finished work. I mentioned a, a little bit ago that we have this little three-year-old grandson. By the way, if you're new here to church, I mentioned that a lot. But, but we love this little guy so much, and we have just enjoyed so much just watching him grow up and learn new things. And Robin and Eli are careful to, to really... Uh, help him learn. And so we have books at our house that I'll read with them and Donna will read with them that will have a certain amount of, of the same thing on the page. And we'll always get him to count them out. And he can, he does it so well. The thing that I'm most grateful for that my daughter and my son-in-law have done with our grandson is they've taught him about Jesus. The beautiful thing about teaching him about our risen Savior is that with the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for him, Ezekiel really only needs to know the number one. Just the number one. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 said, there's one God. 
one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter four, verse four through six says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then I love Hebrews seven, verse 27, unlike those other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sin first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sin. It's done. It's complete. It is finished. Here at Crossroads Church, we we have baptism services fairly regularly. And on those baptism services, we'll have... Dozens of people that will follow the Lord in water baptism and make a public profession of their faith in Jesus. We also, at least once a month, um, receive communion together as a spiritual family. And we partake of the bread and the cup, remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we practice these ordinances here in our church, we're careful to remind everybody that this can't save you. This can't make you right with God. That, that, that we're not baptized and, and we don't practice communion as a means of getting saved or getting right with God. In fact, communion and baptism only gives people who are already right with God by grace through faith an opportunity to make a proclamation of that faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's a finished work. It's done. It's complete. Come on, say it with me one more time. It is finished. Stand with me. We want to teach you a new song that declares the finished work of the cross and how thankful we are for what he's done. Since 
This is Pastor Jeff Abels, and I just wanted to take a minute to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been dealing with your heart as you've listened to this message, and you feel like you just need to get right with God. If you have no real assurance that you are right with God, if you cannot honestly say you've been living for God, and you know that needs to change, I want to invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior right now. You know, the Bible tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means God loves you and God's ready to save you. He's just waiting on you to call on him. Why don't you call on him right now by praying a very simple prayer with me. I want you to repeat the words of this prayer after me. Let those words come right from your heart. Let's pray. Dear God, I come to you right now In the name of Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know my sin separates me from God. And I don't want that. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. Through faith in Jesus, I believe my life can change. So I ask you, Jesus, Come into my heart, forgive all my sin, and change my life. Be Lord of my life from this day forward. I don't live for me anymore or this world. God, I want to live for you. Help me to do that. And I thank you right now, even as I pray, according to your promise, 
My sin is all forgiven. I'm now right with God. I am saved. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you just prayed that prayer with me, we would really love to know about it. We'd love to give you some next steps to get you started on your brand new journey of faith. What I'd love for you to do is just text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 337-222-3210. And someone will connect with you to provide you with some resources that I think will help you greatly. Again, just text the word SAVED, S-A-V-E-D, to 337-222-3210. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. And God bless you is our prayer for you.